Welcome to the Painesville Assembly of God podcast. We're always encouraged to know God is working through this ministry to touch lives. So if you have a story to share of how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email at info at Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. I'm Pastor Jacob, if you haven't met me yet. Hi. Um, that video was something that I created with the help of a lot of our volunteers that you saw there. Um, I just brought them in and asked them, like, hey, why do you, why do you serve? And you got to see some of their answers um, there. And I think it's such a powerful thing to remember exactly why it is that we, that we serve and why it is that we do what we do. So as you can see, hopefully from the slide behind me, serving the Lord is what I'm going to be talking about today. But we're going to take a little bit of a roundabout path to get there. So we have a lot of scripture to cover, a lot of ground to get through. So this is what I need from you. I'm a children's pastor. Please humor me. I need everybody to buckle up. So you got, I don't know if you got a harness or you got a seatbelt, but and if you're watching at home, I'm just going to use my imagination and I, I know that you're, that you're doing this. But if you're here, I can see you, okay? I know whether you're doing this or not. So all right, everybody let's buckle in. Everybody buckle in. All right, that's not bad. First service had more people do it, but that's okay. If we, if we get derailed and this train crashes at some point, you're not safe if you didn't buckle in. That's all that I'm saying, all right? Okay, so if you flip through the book of Psalms, um, you see a number of them attributed to the sons of Korah, and that is Psalm 42, 44 through 49, 84, 85, 87 through 88. I highly recommend you write that down. Um, and that's, that's an interesting thing, because when we think about the book of Psalms, typically the first person that we think of as writing them is King David. Um, we know that King David wrote somewhere around maybe a little bit more than half of the book of Psalms, but it's really easy to just assume that he wrote everything. Well, he didn't. There's lots of other authors mixed in there, and my personal favorite of all of them is the Sons of Korah. Now, again, that's more than one person, but that leaves me with the question, well, who, who were the sons of Korah? Why are, they, why are they included in here? So I'm going to go through and I'm going to share with you a little bit of their story, which starts in number 16, funny enough, with a man named Korah. Um, he is one of the Levites. He's a priest. He is a leader um, in Israel at the time where Moses has just led them out of the exile um, they're making their way to the promised land. And Korah gets fed up with Moses' leadership. He's not the biggest fan in the world of Moses. So one day he decides that he's going to get a small, close group of personal friends, about 250 of Israel's leaders. Um, and they're going to go tell Moses that he has no business leading them, um, that the whole assembly is holy, and it's not really his job to be in charge. So let's pick that up. In, uh, in Numbers 16, verse 3. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourself above the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell face down. Then he said to Korah and all his followers, In the morning the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will have that person come near him. The man he chooses will, he will cause to come near him. So uh, Moses and Aaron and then Korah and his 250 friends all go and they get censers, which are just little bowls that you can burn stuff in together, and they get incense and they decide, we're going to make an offering of worship to the Lord. And essentially, God is going to choose whichever offering he accepts. We know that that's the person God has chosen to lead us because 
clearly Korah hasn't seen enough evidence that Moses is supposed to be in charge at this point yet, I get, I guess. Um, and so while they're doing this, God speaks to Moses and he says, hey, I need you to do something for me. Stay, give a good physical distance, we know what that's all about right now, don't we, from between you and Korah and all of his stuff, because it's not going to end well for him. And Moses says, hey, God, can you give me a chance to warn everybody around him because they don't need to die for this man's sins. So God agrees, and this is what Moses said. So picking this up in number 16. He warned the assembly, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you will be swept away because of all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram were just a couple of the guys with Korah. Um, Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives, children, and little ones at the entrance of, to their tents. Then Moses said, this is how you know that the Lord has sent me to do these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them, and then they go down into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. Man, you have to be confident to say something like that. As soon as he finished saying this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah, together with their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, the earth is gonna swallow us too. And the fire came from the Lord and consumed 250 men who were offering the incense. Wow, that's intense. Um, basically what happens here is there's, there's a standoff. There's Korah and all his guys next to their tents on this side, and then there's everybody who's standing with God and with Moses on the other side. And there's more than 250 people with Korah, by the way. Those were just the leaders. There were other people who, um, who had gone with him. And so Moses gives them this warning. He says, hey guys, you need to step away from him because it's not going to end well. And so when they give their offering, the ground opens up and swallows them alive. Not a great way to go. Um, but that leaves us with an interesting question, right? I'm here because I'm talking about the sons of Korah. And didn't it just say in verse 33 that they kind of got swallowed up along with everything else that Korah owned? Well, the existence of the sons of Korah throughout the rest of Scripture is evidence that clearly some of his sons, some of his family, looked at what he was doing. Now, remember, he was a Levite. He was a priest. His job was to worship God and lead people in worship. That would have been their jobs, too. That's how things were divided out in Israel. And they decided, well, this is what my family is doing. This is what my dad is doing. But this is what I know the Lord is telling me to do. And so they made a very brave decision, and they stepped away. They had to physically walk away from the tents of their father and stand with Moses and stand with God. That's a hard thing to do. But as you can see, it worked out pretty well for them because they didn't get eaten by the earth. Um, and so throughout the rest of scripture, we see these generations, they're called the Korahites or the sons of Korah. It doesn't matter if it's the immediate son of Korah or his grandson or great-grandson or on and on and on and on for as long as they lived. Um, they were called the sons of Korah. Now, that's, that's a funny thing to just think about that for a minute. If you were in this position where you had to, to walk away from something like this, would you want everybody to call you by and remember you as the son of that rebel, the guy who tried to lead the people away from Moses, the guy who tried to rebel? 
I don't think that would be much of a compliment, but maybe it was a little bit different because for generations, they were called the sons of Korah. That makes me think that people, when they saw them, they remembered this. They remembered the faithfulness, not of Korah, but of the sons of Korah, of the men who chose to walk away from what they knew was wrong and to stand with God and make the difficult decision. So, when we get to the point in time where uh, the Psalms are being written, the Korahites are the gatekeepers of the temple. They're songwriters and they're also essentially the janitors of the temple. They do all the dirty work there, um, but they also watch and they have a very important job to see if any danger is approaching. Um, and they write, they write this in Psalm 46.2. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea remembering the stories from their direct ancestors about how the earth had opened up and swallowed them. You see, these guys who wrote these probably weren't the immediate sons of Korah. These were some great-great-grandchildren down the line, but it still would have stuck out more to them to remember that story because they knew that that's where they had come from. That was their family that that happened to. Now, I don't know about you, but that changes the way that I read this psalm. And again, I'm going to list through all those again if you want to go read them. Psalm 42, 44 through 49, 84 and 85, and 87 and 88. If you read through those, you'll see things a little bit differently if you remember them in the light of the context of what I just told you. They call back to these things that had happened in their lives, and it means more because you know what they went through to get there. And I think that's something important to remember when we're reading the Bible, to understand what the author was going through when they wrote it really changes the way that we can see and understand scripture. So now we're gonna to get to the fun part. Um, trust me, that wasn't the fun part. Um, we are going to talk about one of my favorite characters in the Bible. It's a little bit of a tie, but he's up there. Um, and he is, nobody knew this off the top of their heads or at least was brave enough to shout it out first service, so we'll see. If you shout it out at home, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna hear you, but you're still welcome to. So this person is the author of the longest book in the Bible. Can anybody tell me who that is? So, so close, yes, almost. Uh, somebody shout out Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible. It is 33,002 words in Hebrew, but Jeremiah did not write it. The book of Jeremiah was written by a scribe named Baruch, and we're gonna get into his story in a little bit here, but in, again, in order to understand what's going on, we need to understand the context of what was happening. So, Jeremiah is a very intimidating book. I just told you it's the longest book in the Bible, and if you don't really know the history of what's going on, all that you're really reading is a bunch of really, granted, very beautiful, but very sad poetry about long-dead nations. Um, about how God is going to destroy them. And it's really depressing and probably not what you're looking for when you're opening up your Bible looking for some sort of encouragement for the day. Um, so let's, let's jump into the story. The year is 626 BC. We all remember it. Um, and a young man named Jeremiah is working in the temple as a priest. And he's somewhere between the age of 17 and 21. So I'm 22 years old, if you didn't know. So he's younger than I am at this point. We don't know exactly how old he was. And this is how the conversation goes when God calls him as a prophet. And you've probably heard at least some of this verse before. So Jeremiah 1, 4 through 9 says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth. For all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. 
Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put his hand out and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Now, you can see that Jeremiah immediately starts arguing with God when God's like, hey, guess what? I knew you since before you were in the womb and you're gonna be a prophet. Um, And we think, man, what a dumb thing. Moses did the same thing, right? God tried to give him a great appointment and he was like, hold on, I'm not good at talking because apparently that's the greatest requirement to serve the Lord, these people thought. Um, And it's easy to judge Jeremiah and say, like, that was such a, like, God's gonna use you to do something amazing, right? Aren't you excited about this? But Jeremiah understood something that at least I have a tendency to forget when I'm reading through the Bible. See, being a prophet was one of the worst jobs that you could possibly have. So Jeremiah was a Benjamite. He was a priest before God called him. And a priest is, has a very similar role to a pastor. They, they teach people about God's word. They try to usher people into his presence. Um, and that's, that's a very powerful, very important, very fulfilling role to have. A prophet does not do that. A prophet is a little bit like an alarm clock. Because see, you, you set an alarm clock before you go to bed and it wakes you up in the morning. It gives you a wake-up call. Um, most of the time, you're not super happy to hear that wake-up call. You, how many people in here would just love your alarm clock? I do not. Yep, Ray raised his hand again. He raised that first service. I still don't believe him. Um, because it makes you do something you don't want to do, right? It makes you change something. It says, hey, Something's got to change. You've got to get out of bed or there's going to be trouble. Well, that's what a prophet does. They go to a bunch of people who are pretty happy with the terrible way their lives are going right now. And he says, guess what? You need to change something or something bad is going to happen. There's going to be a consequence. And so much like how we often want to throw our alarm clocks against the wall, they like to do that with the prophets. Except by throw them across the wall, I mean kill them. Um, So Jeremiah understood that and he knew what he was getting into. Um, And even worse, this is the message that God had given Jeremiah. I'm going to let him, I'm going to let him tell it. So about uh, the people that he was going to preach to, this is what Jeremiah said. This is Jeremiah 5.3. They have made their faces harder than rock and they have refused to repent. Boy, when you're preaching, those are the people you want to talk to. Man, their their faces are as hard as rock and they don't want to repent. Um... And then so when he was talking about what is our place right now in the story of God's people, and this is sort of the theme verse of the entire book of Jeremiah, if you look into it, um, is Jeremiah 8.20. It says, the harvest has passed and the summer is ended and we are not saved. What a bummer. Uh, Basically, it's all coming to an end and nobody is willing to change. The nation is going to get destroyed and nobody's willing to do anything about it. So, that's, that's a little bit of context. We're going to move to another part of the story. So while Jeremiah was a prophet, there were five kings that he kind of served under. The first was Josiah. Josiah was actually a great king. He made sweeping reforms across um, all of Judah because at this point, Israel has already been destroyed and taken over, and all that's left is the tribe of Judah. Um, and he, he's done great things, but he isn't done yet with all the changes that he needs to make Um, And he ends up going to battle against the pharaoh in Egypt at the time who was Necho, and he dies. Um, So three months, no, immediately after that, not three months after that, um, immediately after that, he is succeeded 
um, by his son, Jehoiahaz, who was not a very good king, but that's okay because he only survived for three months before Necho came and killed him. Um, Necho then decides, well, I'm in charge of Judah now, so I'm going to put somebody else on the throne um, to, to rule this place so I don't have to worry about it. So he picks um, Josiah's brother, Jehoiakim, um, and he's going to be kind of the main villain of what we're talking about for the rest of what's going on. He was a very, very bad dude, and he lasted as king for a lot longer than all these other guys, but we'll get back to him. So Jehoiakim's ultimate fate is that Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon invades Judah, and he gets taken off and killed. Um, he's then succeeded by, I believe, his son Jehoiachin, who's only 18 years old, also a bad king, but it doesn't really matter because three months later he's killed. And then finally, Nebuchadnezzar decides, I'm going to put my own guy in there. I'm sick of people whose names start with Jehoiah for some reason. So I am going to put Zedekiah in charge. And if you read the book of Jeremiah, he hated Zedekiah with good reason. He was a bad, bad dude. So why did all this happen? Why was there so much turmoil? Why were they invaded by Egypt and then taken over by Babylon? What was going on? I think the best way to surmise that is in Jeremiah 2 verse 10 um, where this is, what, this is what God says. This is why God gives his reasoning as to why they have to be destroyed. He says, cross over to the coasts of Cyprus and look. Send to Keter and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they aren't gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. You see, it wasn't that the people had completely walked away from God and forgot him. They were still doing everything right. They were worshiping in the temple. They were making their sacrifices. They were praying. But they were also doing that to all of the other gods that, lived in, that people worshiped in the surrounding nations. So they would effectively be like, hey, I'm going to go to the temple and make my offering, and it's going to be great. And then immediately after that, I'm going to go over to Jehoiah whatever's party, and we're going to sacrifice our children. Woo! Um, it was a bad, bad situation. And all the prophets, well, not actual prophets, false prophets who said that they were God's prophets, um, were like, hey, guys, don't worry about it because here's the thing. God loves us. And because God loves us, he's not going to let anything bad happen to us. They were right about one thing. God did love them. The thing that they were wrong about is that it was because God loved them that he wasn't willing to let them continue down the path they were going. So that's why ultimately God ended up destroying them. But this finally brings us to Baruch, who uh, enters the story during the fourth year that Jehoiakim has been king. See, Jeremiah is ordered by God to hire a scribe, somebody to help him write down and put all of the things that he's been saying together into one big scroll so that it can be preserved and shared with the people. Um, now, interesting just to me, Jeremiah probably didn't need Baruch as a scribe because he couldn't read and write. Uh, Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations, probably without Baruch's help. It's a little, little bit iffy on whether Baruch was involved in that or not. Um, but he needed his help because it was a hard thing to do. Now today, if we want to write something, if I want to write this, I sit down with my computer, I open up Microsoft Word or Pages or whatever you use, I type it up, and it's there. I can print it, it's good to go. They had to acquire a very expensive, very large scroll. They had to get very expensive, very hard to find ink. And then Jeremiah had to sit there and say it, and Baruch had to write it down. And if Baruch ever made a mistake when he was writing something down, they had to take a knife, cut off that part of the scroll, cut it again, make sure you got that part off, and then you had to sew it back together. 
This was a lengthy, difficult process. Did I mention that Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible? And this is what he was writing by hand. Now, I should also mention that through this whole time, Jehoiakim, the king, doesn't like them, and he is trying to hunt them down and kill them. They are on the run trying to do this. And this whole process takes somewhere around a year. While this is going on, by the way, um, just to let you know how bad things were for them, uh, at one point, Jeremiah gets grabbed by a crowd of people that he's preaching to, and they say, you can't say these things, we're going to kill you. Now, fortunately for him, there was a guy there who said, now hang on, he's saying the same stuff that this other prophet had said before, and we didn't kill that guy, so really we shouldn't be killing this guy. And everybody goes, ah, fine, Jeremiah, you can go, it's fine. But there was another prophet at the time who God had appointed named Uriah, and Uriah was giving the same message in the same place, but he wasn't quite as lucky to have that other guy there. Uriah ended up fleeing and escaping to Egypt, and King Jehoiakim, knowing this, sent a group of thugs to Egypt to grab him and bring him back to Judah. Unfortunately, not to be like, hey, awesome, he brought him back so that he could either, it's a little unclear based on the wording of the Bible, whether he killed him himself or just wanted to watch him be killed. Um, either way, it was a bad time. So they're building up to this. Jeremiah is not allowed to go to the temple anymore. He, um, if he goes out, he's going to get killed. People are going to see him, and immediately he's gone. So Baruch is then given the job of taking the finished scroll and taking it to the people and reading it and presenting it. He's not stoked about this idea because I just mentioned people have died for saying the very words that he now has to go out and say. So he breaks down and he cries out to God. He says, God, you've added misery to my pain. I don't know if I can do this. And then we get to me what is one of the most fascinating verses in scripture because let me just, it's hard to make this clear. So Jeremiah is talking to Baruch to write down what God is saying to Jeremiah. Is everybody with me? So this is something that he is directing directly to Baruch. So the way that this is written, and I'm going to read this here. It's the entire chapter uh, 45. Buckle your seatbelts. It's not that long. Uh, this is the word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he wrote the words on the scroll at Jeremiah's dictation in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That's all context. This is the message. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to you, Baruch. You have said, woe is me, because the Lord has added misery to my pain. I am worn out with groaning and have found no rest. This is what you are to say to him. This is what the Lord says. What I have built, I am about to demolish, and what I have planted, I am about to uproot. This whole land. But as for you, do you seek great things for yourself? Stop seeking, for I am about to bring disaster on every living creature. This is the Lord's declaration. But I will grant you, your life, like the spoils of war wherever you go. Now, I just find it fascinating because God spoke to Jeremiah to say to Baruch, and then Baruch had to write that God spoke to Jeremiah to say to Baruch. It was, it was just a weird cycle thing going on there. But there's some things that I want you to notice because there's a lot packed into that one really, really short chapter. The first is that God acknowledges Baruch's pain. He doesn't tell him like, hey, I know you said, yo, you've added misery to my agony. God acknowledges, you know what? I know that this is what you're going through. Like, I can see the pain. I am with you. I am hurting as well. I'm not happy about what's going on. So maybe you need that as an encouragement today that God sees you and the pain that you're in. He is aware of it and he is doing 
his very best about it. I can guarantee you that. So the second thing is that God asked Baruch to examine his motivation, to, to count the cost of service. I find this really fascinating because Baruch is signed up for this. He's been working on this for a year now, and he is being asked now by God, hey, why are you doing this? Why are you serving me? Why are you writing this scroll? Is it because you want some sort of greatness for yourself? Are you in it for the money? Are you in it for the fame? Because you're not going to get that. And Baruch decides, well, we'll find out in just a second what he decides. And the third thing that God promises him is specifically the spoils of war. And that's his life as the spoils of war. But the fact that he uses the phrase the spoils of war. See, the spoils of war only go to the person who wins the war. So to Baruch, this is a promise of victory. God is saying, I know it's hard. I can see you hurt. I want you to look at why you're doing this and see that it's worth it. And I want you to know that victory is assured. So Baruch makes a hard decision. He decides that he's going to serve the Lord above all else. And he takes the scroll and he reads it in the temple to the people. And they say, hey, this is good stuff. This sounds like what Jeremiah said. And he says, yeah, he's the guy who said it. And so he's then taken to the the leaders of the city in Jerusalem, and they listen, and they're a little intrigued by what they hear too, but they realize Jeremiah said this stuff, didn't he? And Baruch says, yeah. So they say, okay, this is what we want you to do. We're going to take this to the king, because he needs to hear what Jeremiah has to say. But he's probably not going to like it, so you and Jeremiah need to go on the run for your lives right now. So they give Baruch and Jeremiah a little bit of time to get out of town, and then um, they take the scroll to King Jehoiakim. Now, we all know King Jehoiakim is a very good and respectful person, so he has, he has somebody read him the scroll. And every four lines, the Bible is very specific, every four lines that are read to him, he cuts off, just the same way that if you made a mistake, you would cut it off with a scribe's knife, and he throws it into the fire. Jehoiakim basically says, all of this is wrong, I don't care what God is saying to me, this is all a mistake. And he burns the entire scroll, and when he's finished, he orders that Jeremiah and Baruch be found and put to death, which he's been trying to do for a while now anyway. So they, they do end up escaping. God grants them their lives as the spoil of war. And Baruch continues his writing. He starts over, having spent a year doing something that didn't really feel like it paid off. He goes into it again, and he rewrites the entire book of Jeremiah, sacrificing everything to preserve Jeremiah's words and life story, having realized that there is no greater earthly reward than to serve the Lord. And this time he actually makes it longer. You'll notice the story of the scroll being burned is in Jeremiah. He kept writing after that point. He found stories about everything that happened in Jeremiah's life and kind of made an anthology, which is why it's the longest book in the Bible now. So all of Jeremiah's prophecies end up being fulfilled. Judah is destroyed, the temple gets ripped apart, and the people are scattered across all of Babylon. If you're interested in figuring out where this fits in the timeline of all of Scripture, this is when the book of Daniel happens. This is when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and all that stuff goes down. And by the way, Baruch and Jeremiah were there to see all of that happen. So what am I getting at here? What do the sons of Korah and Baruch have to do with one another? Well, both of them made really hard choices to serve the Lord. They were faced with kind of an ultimatum of what they needed to do, and it cost them the lives as they knew it to do it. But I think that they knew that it was worth what they were getting themselves into. As Jeremiah put it in Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name. 
And in personally my favorite portion of Psalms, the sons of Korah sang, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. You see, service is not always fun and it's almost never easy. When Jesus was in the garden before going to die on the cross, he begged God, he said, hey, if there's any other way that we can do this, I would just love to do it like that, man. And God says, no, we ought to do this the hard way. And Jesus submits. Um, He bears his burden faithfully, just the same way that the sons of Korah did, just the same way that Baruch did. So before we launch into the last song of worship here, I want to put to you the same question that God asked Baruch. As for you, will you seek great things for yourself or will you put yourself aside and seek first the kingdom of God? Will you seek what God wants before all else? Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We pray that you are encouraged and strengthened by God's word. For more information about Painesville Assembly of God, please visit PainesvilleAG.com.